Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by it, you reveal to us your character, your will for our life. You, in fact, show us the beautiful life that is ours in Christ. And so, Lord, would you by your spirit apply this word to our hearts? Would we be those who uh, not only are hearers of it, but doers of it? because of what you are doing in the heart by the Holy Spirit in subduing our resistance and rebellion against you, Lord, in softening the hardness of our hearts, in illuminating the dark places of the heart, Lord, in warming the coldness of our heart to you. So, Lord, we're thankful that you are present and at work in the preaching of the word, and would you use it for the glory of your name and the good of Santa Fe and the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a number of years ago, a friend of mine shared a story uh, with me about an experience he had on his high school football team. His, uh, one of his best buddies uh, was in the depressing position of being not the quarterback, but the backup quarterback. The backup quarterback to the star quarterback, who was kind of the key to the success of the whole team. And he knew that, you know, unless um, that guy was injured, uh, he'd never get a snap. But then there was this game uh, where the quarterback got hit in such a way that it didn't injure him, but it ripped his pants. And, um, and his friend, this backup quarterback, knew that by, by, by the regulations of the game, you couldn't continue to play with his pants in that condition. And so, you know, he, he, he got excited. He, he put his helmet on, you know, he started to kind of loosen up and stretch. And sure enough, the coach took a timeout. Uh, walked over to him and said, uh, saw what happened on that last play, right? He, he, he ripped his pants. You can't, you can't play with ripped pants. And he's like, coach, I know that, I know that. And then the coach said to him, you need to give him your pants. <laughs> you know, that's a little <laughs> emblematic of life in many ways, right? I mean, there's frustration. Um, you practice. You're present. You know, you... You put in the work. Uh, you've got dreams of glory and participating. And, you know, you, f you find that, you know, you're, you're sidelined, you're pantsless, you know, frustrated. Sorry. I am. You know, the last few weeks we've been talking uh, about frustration, but about one that is deeper and more profound than, than even that, than being sidelined and humiliated. Uh, we've been talking about the frustration of struggling with sin. Now, granted, you may not describe your struggles as being struggles with sin. You may not attribute your struggles to sin. Uh, but at least we can start with, you know, agreeing that we've all got our struggles. I mean, I've yet to meet the person who, who doesn't deal with brokenness in their own lives and brokenness in the world that, that they feel needs fixing and isn't so easy to fix. Uh, there is, I think we can all agree, a brokenness in the world that is deep. And the Bible says that's not because, you know, we've yet to unlock and realize the fullness of our human potential. Uh, it, it's, it instead says that there is in the world a persistent and powerful presence of sin. And no one is left unscathed by it, least of all Christians. And in fact, Paul has said 
uh, that, that the struggle with sin is part and parcel of being a Christian. Uh, he's just said, I mean, notice the intensity with which he describes that struggle in the last chapter, in chapter 7. He said, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And, and you know, whatever else you may make of that statement of Paul's, that is not a statement of someone pursuing moral reformation. People, you know, gunning for their best life now don't talk like that. Uh, they say things to motivate themselves. They'll say things like, I'm becoming the change I want to see in the world, right? Or uh, things like, whatever the mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. You know, or if, 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 if they've, you know, come headlong into a bummer and are struggling in some way, you know, um, they'll say, forgiving yourself, believing in yourself, and choosing to love yourself are the best gifts one could receive. That is the language of someone pursuing moral reformation. But having faith in Jesus does not merely equip you for moral reformation. It is instead to have undergone a spiritual revolution. It, 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 is, it is one that sets you free, but also in the Christian experience, it makes dealing with sin more intense. So the Christian struggle isn't just a common experience, it in fact stands as evidence. That, that is to say, the very existence of your struggle with sin and my struggle with sin is an indication that there is something present and at work in your heart and mind that wasn't present and at work before. And that thing Paul calls in this chapter the Spirit of God dwelling in you, Christ in you. Sin remains, but the relationship to it has been altered so radically that on the one hand, your longings change, you have greater desires, you want better things, you, want to, you, you begin to love the things that God loves, you know, and correspondingly, your loathings change. You despise sin all the more. You want to get rid of it. You, you hate the damage it does in you. You see the damage it does to others. You see how it hinders your relationship with God. You, you kind of see that blast radius in your life, and you want it to go away. You want it to change. So the relationship to sin has changed in Christ because the relationship to God's standard, the law, has changed. Because Jesus saved you, you know that the law can't be a savior to you. you, you and because that's true, you can never be a legalist as a Christian. You can never you know, say things like, you know, real Christians don't struggle with sin anymore because they've gotten better at keeping the law. Um, but neither can you blow off God's law as irrelevant, um, like it no longer matters or applies to you because Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it as, as, as the beautiful reflection of God's character and will for His people, Right? So if you're a Christian, you can't be a legalist, but neither can you be a, li a, a libertine. And all of that has radical implications for how you live your life. Um, that, that is really what we're dealing with as we turn to Romans 8. What does it look like to live your life now with a new nature, but as one who still struggles with sin? And Paul actually describes what that life is, what it looks like to live that way in verse 4. He calls it living by the Spirit. Now, to begin to understand what that means, 
we once again have to pay attention to this very important word that shows up in the Bible regularly, and the word is therefore. Um, That's the first word of this chapter. And what that means fundamentally is that everything he's about to tell us about what it means to live in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, is anchored, is electrified, is powered by what has been accomplished, not by you and me, but what has been accomplished by Christ in salvation as both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you never get to what do we do as a Christian without first anchoring it in what has Christ done for you in redemption. So Paul sums up what Jesus has done for his people in verse 1 with, I think maybe the two most potent, powerful words as any you will find in the Bible. And those two words are no condemnation. Christians are, by definition, those against whom there is, because of Christ, no condemnation. And Paul puts this in the most muscular way one can imagine, using a legal term, which means that there is absolutely nothing held against you. Nothing. There's no debt to pay. There's no penalty to suffer. There's no punishment to endure. Because of Jesus, God has nothing against you. He finds no fault. He is not disappointed with you. He is not depressed about you. He is not determined to get you, ever. And no condemnation, also, we need to be very clear about this. This is not, you know, referring to the rough and rowdy days of my guilty past. Merely that. Nor is it contingent upon my personal obedience in the present. As if to say, you know, so long as I stay in God's will, as if it's possible for you to step out of God's will. You know, um, there's no condemnation for me. No condemnation is neither temporary nor is it tenuous. It is total. It is not an oscillating reality. It is an objective reality if you are a Christian. Condemnation is not now nor will it ever be again a part of your life. That is to say, there is not some special reserve of wrath, of the wrath of God towards sin that has been withheld from Jesus on the cross and reserved for you. For those who have put their faith in Christ, it is as if the very concept of condemnation doesn't exist for you anymore. It doesn't exist. It means that to be in Christ is to live under God's smile with the fullness of His acceptance, with His fatherly delight in you as a son or daughter of the Most High, with His perpetual welcome. There's a picture I saw years ago of John F. Kennedy Jr. under the desk of his father, President Kennedy, in the Oval Office. Now, I'm sure that to gain access to that office for anyone else, would have required, you know, level after level after level of security except for the son, for the one who, for whom there's, there's nothing held against him. It's all delight. It's all welcome. It's all familial connection and fatherly delight. And he just goes in the Oval Office, plays under the desk. That gives a flavor of something of what, it, of what you have in Christ, that you have the full acceptance, the fullness of his delight, the fullness of his welcome. And, and here's... 
you know why I'm just going on about this, because no truth has greater and more profound implications for how you and I live every day than, than that truth. The, the great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones went so far as to say that most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this one verse. And troubles that afflict Christians in failing to believe that there is now no condemnation for them are deeply serious. Uh, and and they, I think the, the general effect of them is they cause us to cling to what we've got to let go of and to fail to grasp what has become fully ours by right. So even though there is objectively no condemnation, no punishment coming your way, nothing to prove, functionally, day in and day out, we forget this. We fail to believe it. We imagine that God isn't pleased with us and that the difficulty of my circumstances, the devil will tell you, is exhibit A of that. You know, or that he's, pun he's poised to punish us. So lacking confidence in God's approval results in us trying to steal it from some other place. You, you will do that. You and I will do that. We will try with great energy and desperation to wrest significance from career, from credentials, from relationships, from recreation, from wealth, from the, the success of our children, from physical health or beauty, from our righteous causes. Absolutely anything we can latch onto in the hope of, you know, wringing out of it something that would say to my conscience and to the people around me, I matter. I am secure, I'm loved, I'm accepted. When we don't believe that there really and truly is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we cling to what we ought to let go of and looking to life outside of Christ, which necessarily means that we can't get a hold of what only God can give us in Christ. Assurance, joy, peace, confidence, contentment, and a motivation a whole new motivation to live a holy life. Now, it needs to be said that, that none of that means we won't still be able to do, you know, our religious thing, um, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, you know, we can all still show up here on Sundays, and throughout the week we can, we can do all the stuff with, with services and studies and worship and fellowship and coffee time, and, and I can, you know, I can preach and, and pray and do the Lord's Supper and get together with you, and we can do all the church stuff, but if we aren't anchored in the liberating, life-changing, present power of the gospel, we won't be motivated by deep gratitude for grace. We will be motivated by guilt. We won't delight in what Jesus has done, but we will be driven with a sense of bare and bruising duty of what we must do. William Cowper wrote a hymn called Love Constraining to Obedience, and which captures in the chorus the beauty of the Christian presently grasping the power of the gospel. And the chorus goes like this, to see the law of, by Christ fulfilled, to hear His pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. The gospel has present power to turn slave into child, duty to freedom, 
It, it has power to relocate and revive the deepest motives of the heart from I've got to make a life for myself by what I do to I have abundant life because of what Jesus has done. And I live in the freedom of that. The gospel, in other words, turns the heart from the law motive to the love motive. Now, when I was in college, I had experience with these motives. Um, of course, I was a student. I had a motivation to graduate. I did all the stuff, you know, attended class, set out to fulfill requirements. I listened to lectures. I read books. Um, back in these days, you actually wrote on paper, took notes, um, took tests. But you know what else was going on in college? <laughs> I fell in love. I fell in love with the woman I married, still married to. My, my, my academic Motives were driven, were pretty law-driven. There were boxes to check. I had an advisor who would remind me to keep track with my requirements. I had a father who reminded me that none of this was free. So I did my duty. I pressed on. I, had, I was driven by a law motivation, but at the same time, I had a love motivation, I had, which required no advisor, no checklist, no requirements, no one reminding me of what I had to do. The, the love motive, and, and the love motive did something to me in my heart. Changed me. It, it, it had these effects of, you know, for example, it made me self-forgetting. Quit thinking about myself all the time. I'm sick of myself. Filled me with joy. Gave me gratitude. It, it kind of messed me up, but in a good way. You know, it turned my priorities upside down. Like if I knew... There was a five-minute window where Kit was, you know, half a mile across campus, and I had to have a chance to see her during that period. I'd book it across campus, and I'd go see her for five minutes. If I had a little money in my pocket, I'd want to spend it on her. If she, you know, I had a car, she didn't have a car. If she needed the car, she, the keys are yours. I wasn't fulfilling state-mandated boyfriend requirements. Instead, you know, my heart was captivated taken over by a new motive driven by love so that, you know, there was no sense of duty. I didn't care about money or time or possessions or schedule. I wasn't living by rules. I was living in relationship. And that gave me a new and powerful motivation driven by love and gratitude. And that, that gives us some flavor of what Paul is driving at here. Now, that's one verse, okay? Um, we're not going to be here for hours and hours. Um, but that's one verse, but that one verse is worth the time. That verse summarizes seven chapters of this letter. It encapsulates the truth that the gospel objectively conveys upon Christians a new status, a new identity, a new standing before the Lord, which changes everything. So after beginning and telling us that God's victory over sin through Jesus means that there is now no condemnation. Paul continues in verse 2 by saying that because that's true, because there's no condemnation, now means that sin is no longer in control. Through Jesus Christ, which is to say by faith in Him, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now that word law is used there a couple of times. Law can, when you see that word, it can mean several things. It can refer to the particular sort of biblical legislation. It can mean things like the Ten Commandments. Um, it can mean the general principles of how the law works. 
but it can also refer to really the power of the law to move you, to influence your direction. And that's really what, what Paul's talking about here, the law's power. Paul explains that God frees us from sin's condemnation and its control by doing what the law, weakened by the flesh, could never do. There's a lot of things the law can do. There's a lot of stuff the law can't do. So what, is, what exactly is it that God did that the law could never do? Well, Paul tells us that God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. What he's saying there is Jesus stepped in as our substitute. He stood before the law and took the punishment for sin that should have fallen on lawbreakers like you and me. He, so he defeated sin legally, completely, enduring God's wrath against sin for us on the cross as our substitute. We should have been there. We weren't. He was. But also, he stood in as our substitute in earning a righteousness that we had no chance of earning through his perfect obedience to the law. Jesus gave us all his A's, and he took away all our F's. So having defeated sin totally in the legal sense, Paul says God is at work right now through the Holy Spirit to get sin out of our life, to free us from it, from its control, from its misery. That's why Paul says that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Why? In order that the, righteousness, the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. God was gracious to accomplish salvation in Christ and remains gracious by His Holy Spirit to apply it to our hearts, breaking the bondage to sin so that we might live holy lives. Now, I don't know if the idea of holiness was ever popular. It's certainly not now. Um, you know, if I say to you, hey, I have determined to set out and live a life of holiness, you might think in this culture, um, John is going to pursue holiness, not happiness, as if they are opposed. But I, I want you to hear this. Anytime the, the Bible talks about holiness, it, it is referring to the bella vita, the beautiful life, the good life, life as it ought to be, in harmony with how we, with who we were made and how we were meant to live to the fullest as human beings made in the image of God. Beautiful life. And, and the living of a holy life is a really big deal in this passage. It, it is central. Holy living is not some kind of side hustle for the Christian. It is central because of what Paul says in verse 4. He says, because, everything, because of everything Jesus did for us in His incarnation in his crucifixion and his resurrection was all for this great singular purpose that we might live holy lives to the glory of God. One writer I came across said that the thing that Jesus lives for, the purpose of his entire life, is to make us holy, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law in us. And because that's true, we have to see that holiness is not the end product of our law keeping. We know that's not true. It's not possible. Actual holiness is the fruit of Jesus' paying for our law-breaking, of His perfect law-keeping for us. 
and applying that to our hearts by the, by the Holy Spirit. And that is why the holiest people you and I will ever meet are at the very same time the humblest people you'll ever meet. They are the people, the holiest people you will ever meet have the, the least sense of their own holiness. And the reason is, is because deep in their bones, they know it's not about them, it's about Christ in them. It's not a product of their striving, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, it's striking that in the previous seven chapters of Romans, there have been only two mentions of the Holy Spirit, but here in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times. The Spirit being at work. What does it mean? Paul says, you know, our call is to live according to the Spirit. What does that actually mean to grow in holiness by overcoming sin and growing in, in grace in such a way that we can actually, as Paul put it back in chapter 7, delight in the law of God in our inner being. Well, Paul says in verse 5 that this comes by setting the mind on what the Spirit desires. There's a lot about setting the mind here, but, but what we need to see fundamentally is that there is a very strong connection between how we think and how we live. Uh, this is a, a more intense than... than just having good thoughts than just thinking about theology and religion, but neither is it merely mental focus or concentration. What Paul's describing here, I think, is something more like the, the preoccupation of your thoughts, the having your imagination captivated. The setting of the mind is something like the, 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 the direction in which you find your thoughts drifting. It's what fills the mind, should you ever be so fortunate in the world of iPhones, to be free of distraction. <laughs> it's, where your, it's where your daydreams take you. What fills your mind when you daydream? The Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, once said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. That's kind of getting at it. Pay attention to that, and you will get a good sense of where your mind is set what your real religion is, what you're really living for, what directs your life and shapes your character. That's what Paul's talking about in the setting of the mind. And he, also, he goes on to say we don't merely, you know, it's not like we just decide what to set our minds on. Our minds will be set on one thing or another. They will either be set on the Spirit and the things of the Spirit or the things of the flesh. The mind set on the flesh is in essence a perspective on life with no reference outside of the self, the sovereign self the Holy Trinity of me, myself, and I. It's, it's, it's a perspective as old as, as old as Adam in disregarding God's will for my life so that I determine what is good for me and what is bad for me. And taking that perspective, despite, you know, the sense that I am acting in perfect freedom, ironically, I am utterly crippled by the mind set on the flesh. I am not only crippled, I am controlled I will be led by the nose in the direction of life as less than it ought to be. And in fact, Paul says it, is, it results in death. So in verses 7 and 8, in some of the starkest statements in the whole Bible, Paul says the mindset on the flesh isn't neutral toward God, it's hostile toward God. Consume with the self. The mindset on the flesh just can't love the Lord because there are other greater loves. There are competing Loyalties. I could say to my wife, honey, I really, really love you. And by the way, I've got, I've got four other lovers. 
And she will not take that as neutrality. She will take that as hostility, right? Which is why Paul doubles down in verse 8 and saying that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You can't please God like that. And, and I want to be very clear. You don't have to be a Christian to do good things. And, and, and there is no shortage of examples of non-Christians not only doing good things in the world and making the world a better place, but outdoing Christians in the doing of it, for sure. But we're not talking about, this isn't a discussion about the doing of good things. <laughs> it's a discussion about delighting in God, living in relationship to Him. So contrasted to the mindset on the flesh is, the, is what Paul calls the mindset on the Spirit, which is consumed with, is motivated by what Paul calls the things of the Spirit. So what are those? Well, they're things like what you see further down in the chapter in verse 14 where he says that those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, heirs of everything attained for you in salvation through Christ. In verses 15 and 16, another thing of the Spirit is that the Spirit removes a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear and assures us that we are God's beloved children. And further down in verses 26 and 27, we find out that the Spirit provides boldness to approach God with everything we need in prayer. Those are the things of the Spirit, truths upon which Christians are, to, are called to set their minds. Don't let your thoughts drift there. Go there. It's what you're called to believe right now. It's, it's what you're called to believe when your boss is unfair to you. Or, you know, when, you're, when your children are angry with you. Or when you're frustrated that you don't go to the gym more. Whatever it is that's frustrating you, you, your mind goes there. And you remember the things like, I'm a, I'm a child of God. I'm feeling the condemnation, but I know I'm an heir I, I don't need to fall back into slavery. I'm assured that I'm God's beloved children. I have his smile. Every, he's loving me right now. That's what we're called to believe. And, and, and believing is a really big deal. A number of years ago, a friend of mine visited my church, and we had lunch afterwards, and I, I, was, I preached a sermon, and, and I think because we had attended seminary together, he took the liberty to give me a little critique on the sermon, um, which Lord knows I need. And, and basically, he said, I like the sermon, but, but there's one big problem. There's no application. All you, all you said at the end of the sermon was, we need to believe the gospel. And I was like, brother, that is the application. <laughs> Believing is a thing. It's actually a really big thing. It's a powerful thing. It will determine the course of your life. You're always believing something. You're setting your mind. You know, I don't know if you remember in John 6, when Jesus had just told a crowd of people not to work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which he is glad to give, people heard that. And then guess what they asked him for? Application. Give, give us some marching orders, Jesus. Tell us what to do. And so they said that. They said, okay, that being true, what, what must we be doing to do the works of God? And Jesus said this, this is the work of God that you believe in the one whom God has sent. That's the great work of the Christian, believing the gospel. In other words, set your, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Believe. Believe that because of Jesus, there actually is objectively no condemnation for you. 
Believe that you don't have to sing for your supper to get the good things of life, the good things from God, because God has secured them for you in Christ and eternally. Believe that you don't have to steal approval from your job performance, your relationships, some self-made rickety duct-taped identity that you are hiding yourself in because you have God's smile upon you, and it is His good pleasure in Christ to make you His beloved son and beloved daughter. Believe that you don't have to back into God's presence fearfully, but that you are invited to go in like John F. Kennedy Jr. boldly because you're a son, you're a daughter. Believe the gospel. Preach it to yourself this week. Remind your friends of it. Come here next week and relish it and rely on it. Let it mess up your schedule so that you never miss church. So you're hearing the gospel and you're eating at his table so that whatever, whenever your conscience or the world or the devil is condemning you and trying to convince you that you've once again blown it and God is done with you and all hope is lost, you can say, you can accuse me all you want, but you can't accuse Jesus and I am in him and he is in me. I'm in Christ, and there is now no condemnation for me. It doesn't exist for me. There's nothing more vital than that for our lives. Years ago, I came across this story about this guy named Hiru Onoda, who's a Japanese uh, Army intelligence officer stationed in the Philippines. Uh, And he landed in the Philippines in February of 1945. At this point, the Allies had uh, gained massive strength in the Pacific. The war was near its end. And as they landed, his, his unit was almost completely wiped out, except for him and three other soldiers who ran for the hills. And it was from there that they would carry out, you know, guerrilla tactics against the Allied forces. But then in, 1940, in August of 1945, leaflets began to fall from the sky <laughs> that told them that the war is over come down from the hills. And they read these leaflets, and they didn't believe it. They, they, they were convinced it was propaganda. Over time, three of the other soldiers who were with them were either, either surrendered or were captured, but Anoda held out and kept fighting until 1974. 29 years after the end of the war, It took the Japanese government finding him and flying his old commanding officer in person down to that jungle in the Philippines, telling him to take a break from his bookshop, which he'd been running for 25 years, to to show up and tell Anoda to his face, it's true. The war is over. You can quit fighting. You can get out of survival mode. Japan's actually become a pretty great place. Now, we're here this morning with something a lot better than leaflets falling from the sky um, or a commanding officer flown in from the, from the home country. We're here uh, with God speaking to us through his holy word, uh, telling us, stop fighting. Get out of survival mode. The, the war is over. Jesus has won the hostilities that once afflicted you and beat you down and defeated you are over. Come into possession of a whole new country. Enjoy that. Be at peace. So the question I I guess I want to leave us with is what, what would it look like if we actually believed it? What would it look like if we stopped believing in ourselves and believed in Jesus? 
if we quit the foolishness of trying to eke out life in the jungle and trusted Jesus to take us home. Our, our passage actually ends with a, with a great promise about just that. Um, Paul's been making a case for some time uh, that, that through Christ and the, and the liberating power of the gospel and through the Holy Spirit that the days of our spirit having to follow the flesh are over. But he gives us even greater assurance greater even that we're no longer condemned and sin is no longer in control now, but not only is it true that our spirit no longer has to follow the flesh, but one day our flesh will follow the spirit so that he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. He's rescued us and he's going to take us home to a better country. He is presently at work in his people now to transform us, to renew us, to make us alive forever in him by the Spirit so that what he is doing in the here and the now as we believe in his gospel and desperately look to Jesus and, and, and take in gospel sermons and eat at his table is making us fit for life eternal with him where there will be no more sin, where this struggle will be finally and fully over. And I hope that as you come to this table, you will relish that thought, that you will partake in what you, you, you can't provide yourself. But, but feast with what Jesus himself is glad to provide. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would believe the gospel. Um, that we would never uh, consider that a one-time event that happened, you know, in some distant past when we first came to know you, but that we would make it our occupation, uh, that daily we would believe that you, Jesus, indeed, have made it true of us that there is no condemnation, that we would live in the freedom of that, that we would spur one another on in that, that we would share that as good news with a world that is perishing and burdened, and, and, and all the while convinced that it can make a life for itself. Lord, would Santa Fe know the freedom that comes with believing in Jesus and trusting you and seeing you go to work in the heart in such a way that we never could. So Lord, feed us now at this table. Uh, nourish us, not only in our bodies, uh, but in our spirits, so that we may leave here knowing that we have met with the risen Christ who is alive in us and at work in us and in the world. In Jesus' name.